0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, 1 Peter chapter 3. And so tonight we're going to look at three different practical ways to live out our Christianity. The first way is how husbands and wives relate to one another. The second is how we relate to other people in the church and outside the church. And then the third area is dealing with evangelism. How do we share the gospel? So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 6 of uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 <clears throat> Likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. All right, we're going to jump into this controversial subject that anytime a man stands up and a husband stands up and says, okay, wives, here's what you're supposed to do. So here's the, the, the command that Peter gives. And wives are to voluntarily submit or be subject to their own husbands. Now, in verse one, Paul—I'm sorry—Peter is addressing wives particularly. He's not saying. And if you go back to Ephesians chapter five, where Paul teaches the same thing, and where Peter is teaching us here, he does not say husbands force your wives to submit. Is that what he says? No, he says, wives, you be subject to your own husbands. And he specifically addresses the issue of what happens if your husband is not a believer? So we have a lot of women in our church who, for all intents and purposes, husbands aren't believers. And so how are they supposed to respond to their own husbands? Well, there's a key word that shows up all throughout 1 Peter, and we talked about it a few weeks ago. you guys remember the word? It's the word conduct, how you conduct yourself, how your lifestyle. Peter uses it here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Your respectful and pure conduct. Now notice that Peter says they would be one without a word. Now, there's a temptation possibly for wives whose husbands are not believers to possibly badger, bug, domineer over their husband about their need for trusting in Christ. And what Peter says is in this case when wives are pure and respectful and have good conduct actions speak louder than words now i'll tell you guys a story about my brother i got to see him this past weekend because my my niece came out to for a soccer tournament in denver and they're from texas and so when i was when my brother and i were younger i got saved before my brother but i remember when i was probably in uh probably seventh grade he was in fifth grade he's two years younger than me i kept badgering my brother to get saved and so I was like badgering him. I was domineering. I'm like, you need to get saved. You need to get saved, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Mom and dad aren't going to love you as much if you don't. I mean, I was like throwing all the stuff at him, and he just did not like it at all. I actually pushed him away. And so I was badgering him. I was domineering him. I was guilting him. I, I was pretty much in his face about getting saved. Um, all just because I was rubbing it in. There was probably no real love there. It was more just out of motivation to, to kind of see him get his life right um, as a little fifth grader, you know, as, as bad as, as you know, as you are when you're in fifth grade. And so what Peter's saying is, sometimes, wives, you can go a lot further in your testimony by your actions than by your words. Now, that doesn't mean we should never share the gospel with husbands if you're a wife whose husband's not a believer. But what he's saying is, is that really your husband knows you better than you, than anybody else. And so sometimes if you just say the words and there's no action that back them up, it's just like, it's it's empty rhetoric. It's not going to go a long way. They're going to observe your life and they're going to be won over by observing your life. Okay. Now, Peter also talks about the way women are to dress. So, if you've got braided hair tonight, you're living in sin, okay? No, I'm, just, I'm just joking. If you've got a gold jewelry, you are definitely living in rebellion. No, What's Peter saying? Okay, Is Peter saying, is he being legalistic and saying, can't braid your hair, you can't wear gold, you can't dress nice, you can't wear makeup? Now, some church groups have taken that to the extreme where they've had people like the women don't wear any makeup, they dress very plainly because they take this very literalistically. Um, I think what Peter's saying is to wives, to women, you should not spend excessive amount of money and energy and time on outward appearance as a way to validate your self-esteem or to obsess about your looks and fashion. Now notice the words that I use there. Validate, obsess. What is our culture, especially the culture that girls grow up in? What kind of culture in America are girls growing up in as far as looks, clothing, makeup? Starts at a young age, doesn't it? Okay, some of you have teenage daughters. Some of you're, well, you're still a teenager, aren't you? You're a college teenager. You're, you're, you're what, are you 19 yet? Okay, so 19. Your daughter's sixteen. Your daughter is how old? Hey, let well, me tell you something. <laughs> In kindergarten, like the second week of school, I would dress her and I'd tie her tennis shoes and she'd come home with them untied, laces hanging out. I did that for a few days. I said, What are you doing? What's going on? And I tied them up and she hung her head and, what? What I didn't what did I do? Well, that's how you wear them when you're cool. Okay, first of all, kindergarten. So, 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 Alexa you're in kindergarten. Three, teen, three kindergarten boys wear shades. Okay, okay. So, so, so it's starting in kindergarten. So our culture, especially women, there's a lot of pressure on, I got to be, I have got to have perfect teeth. I got to be wrinkle-free. I got to wear size two. I got to be able to fit in a bikini. Uh, everything's got to be, and you can obsess and validate yourself over that. So Peter says, listen, you can go overboard on trying to validate your self-esteem and obsessing over your looks to where that's where you get all of your security. He's not saying point blank, don't, don't look nice for your husbands, don't dress nice. What he's trying to say is don't try to validate your self-esteem and by obsessing over clothing and what, the way you look. And so in Isaiah, 31, Isaiah 3, 16 through 17, the Lord had something interesting to say to the daughters of Zion. He says, the Lord said... Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with the scab the heads of the daughters of Zion. Okay? They're walking around haughty with jewelry and it's almost like a supermodel strutting down the... You can kind of picture like a supermodel strutting down the runway. Okay? So the true focus here... Is on the beauty of the inner person. Peter says, the inner person, the, the, the person that's where your heart is on display, a gentle and quiet spirit, a spirit. Peter calls it precious in God's sight, a woman who radiates godliness, the hidden beauty. Remember when um, God told Samuel to go pick the next king of Israel? And he goes to Jesse's sons and all, prays all of them out there. And then God says, I want David. And Samuel's like, well, he doesn't, you know, he's the last born of the, of, the, of the, he's the runt of the group. What does 1 Samuel 16, 7 say? The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So one of the things I do when I do marriage premarital counseling with couples and even during a wedding ceremony is I'll challenge the wife to um, be that godly, dignified woman whose beauty comes from her character. And I'll challenge the husband to be a man that draws that out of her. Um, And so this whole conduct, purity, radiance that comes from your character more so than just your adorning. Yes, Brent. When we were
1: in Israel in '98, we went to the Church of Mary in Bethlehem. And in the church, they have all these dioramas Mm -hmm. of what Mary would have looked like. So what they did is they went to all the nations of the world and said, you can have this space for a diorama if you want to create what Mary looks like. And in the case of, say, Oriental, uh, like Japan, Mary would have slanted eyes, and they would have all these things. And at the same time, they asked the United States to do it. Well, the United States came over, and here's Mary with flaming hair flying out like Farrah faucet, with silver in her hair and everything else. And it was so sickening to see how, how bad we had gotten. And then Cindy and I, we went outside, and there was this little alcove with this probably 12- or 13-year-old female, Long nose and everything else, and I said, "That's probably, that yeah,
0: I can see. yeah, this this kind of interesting, dress. interesting." So, for wives, what Peter's saying is, you need to voluntarily. Your husband can't force you to submit. You voluntarily submit to your husband. You win over your non-believing husband by your conduct. What is really beautiful is not the way you carry yourself outwardly so much as your character and the inner person of the heart. And then he goes back and talks about the Old Testament saints, Sarah, and those patriarchs, uh, the wives of the patriarchs, how they were an example of those that submitted. Hey, guys, that that did that. Okay? Now, he's not just going to leave guys or husbands in the dust and say, Husbands, I don't have anything to say to you. Um, So he's going to switch to talking to husbands after he's talked to wives. Okay? So verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, what does Peter exhort us as husbands to do? First of all, he says we're to live with our wives in an understanding way. Now, what does that mean, to live with her in an understanding way? It means, in the original language, something to the effect that we are to be emotionally and spiritually receptive to her deepest needs, to nourish and cherish our wives, to sacrificially serve them and seek their greatest good. To to, to be understanding of your wife. Now, men, do we do this very well? (laughs) You guys aren't making eye contact with the guy. (laughs) The guy's like, I don't know about that. One of the hardest things for us as men to do is to sometimes be emotionally connected to our wives in an understanding way, because what do we tend to want to do, men? We want to be able to fix things. We want to fix these things. And sometimes our wives don't want us to fix things. They just want us to be there for them. They want us to love them, to encourage them, to to, to cherish them, uh, to to serve them. And so we are to emotionally and spiritually meet our wives' deepest needs. Okay? So that's that's a high calling. Then the second thing he says is we're to honor our wives as the weaker vessel. Now, we need to be real careful that we don't misunderstand what the weaker vessel means. If I were to go out and say this in public today that the wife is the weaker vessel, I mean that's considered. I mean that's going to be. Um, that, that's not PC, okay. But what's he saying, okay? Let's. What does Peter not mean here? This does not mean that the wife or women are somehow less than a man, or that men are intellectually or spiritually superior. What Peter's simply saying is what you can observe when you just look at the difference between men and women. Physically, women are weaker. They're not as physically strong as men. And that we as husbands must be the providers and protectors of our wives. To protect our wives. Okay, so I'm going to make a statement. (coughs) And I talk about this when I do premarital counseling. I think most everybody would agree. It's not absolute, but here's my statement. Okay, for men, what is the number one thing we desire when it comes to the way our wives treat us? I, or just as men. I would say for men at the top of the list is respect. Would you guys agree with that? For women, what's the greatest thing they need from their husbands? Almost all women I talk to, including my own wife, it is security. They need to feel secure emotionally, spiritually, physically. So what Peter here is saying is that husbands have the responsibility to provide emotional, spiritual, physical security to their wives so that their wives live lives knowing that they're secure okay now the third thing is very very scary okay to men now comes one of the gravest threats in all the bible to husbands about our relationship with christ men if we don't sacrificially love our wives if we're not considerate of their needs if we don't say, serve them humbly humbly and graciously if we don't honor and respect them what's the result what does peter say there Our prayers may be what? Our prayers may be hindered. Now, what does that mean? I thought God answered all prayers. I don't know exactly how all this works. I just know there's a verse here that says, if we aren't loving our wives the way we're supposed to, it could in some ways hinder our prayers. In other words, the closer your relationship to your wife, the closer your relationship to the Lord. So, if you're selfish, and you're not serving your wife, and you're not loving your wife, and you're not cherishing your wife, and you're not protecting your wife, and you're pretty much living for yourself, and you're trying to seek God's will and go pray, Do you think you're in the right frame of mind, number one, to pray the right way? And do you think God's going to direct you and honor those selfish desires? No, I don't think so. So I don't know exactly what that means. Just that Peter says your prayers might be hindered if husbands you don't love and serve your wives. Okay, now... That's the teaching that Peter gives real briefly on husbands and wives. Wives, voluntarily submit to your husbands. Wives, if you have an unbelieving husband, let your conduct in your lifestyle win him over. Women, don't be so obsessed with your looks to try to validate things by the way you look, but let your beauty come from your character. Husbands, serve your wives. Husbands, protect your wives. Husbands, care for your wives Meet the needs of your wives so that your prayers aren't hindered. Any questions on husbands and wives' relationships before we move forward? I know that was like really quick on husbands and wives. Can I take a detour? Because, okay, how's that going to land to some of you tonight? How's it going to land? It's going to be like, oh, that's a tall order. Now, one of the things that Paul does that Peter doesn't do is P- Paul helps root these commands of husbands and wives into something very important. So, if you don't mind, this is just off the off the cuff. It's not in your notes. Turn to Ephesians chapter five, verse eighteen. Ephesians five, eighteen. Ephesians five, eighteen. Because every time I teach you guys the Bible, I want to make sure that I give you the whole counsel of God's Word so that you don't walk away from here frustrated, thinking that you can do all this in your own power or feeling frustrated or guilty that I'm not living up to what God's called me to do. So don't hear me by saying, Wives, you better go out and do this in your own power. Husbands, go out there and do this in your power. Just do it. What does Paul say? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It's very, very important when it comes to husbands and wives. Ephesians 5, 18. Therefore do not be foolish. I'm sorry, that's verse 17. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But what? Be filled with the Spirit. So there's a command there to be spirit-filled. And that doesn't mean weird stuff like jumping on the chandeliers and barking like dogs and all the weird stuff you see. on Being Spirit-filled means being influenced by the Holy Spirit. What happens when you're under the influence of alcohol? You're under its influence. It, it's a depressive. What happens when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit? He guides, He leads you. What's evidence that you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul doesn't leave us in the dark. He tells us there. Okay. Verse 19, here's what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Then Paul goes on to talk about husbands and wives. So before Paul even gives instructions on husbands and wives, He roots it back in this command to be filled with the Spirit. So here's my point. You and I as husbands and wives in our marriages cannot even begin to do what God calls us to do without the power of the Holy Spirit. So first and foremost, the command is not, hey, submit, hey, love. The issue is I want to sow... Seek the face of the Lord that I am being influenced and controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit through the gospel of grace to be able to do these things. Because if not, it's just moralism. You're just doing it out of your own power. Okay? All right. You guys ready to shift gears? Let's go back to 1 Peter. And let's talk about another issue. Suffering for righteousness sake. So let's read verses 8 through 12. So we're back in First Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to live to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, if, if you're paying attention to your Bible, what does verse 8 start with? Finally, okay, how many more chapters do we have of 1 Peter? we got two more. So is he getting down to the end? Finally, not, not like finally this is the end of my letter. I think it contextually flows back to what he started to say back in chapter 2, verse 11. What did he say back in chapter 2, verse 11? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Okay, so he's talking... He's, Finally, he's, he's bringing this whole conversation kind of to a close that relates to how you relate to the governing authorities, how you relate to slaves and masters, how husband, so, so how husbands and wives relate to one another. So all these different categories. How you relate to the government, we looked at that last week. How you relate to your employees, we looked at that last week. Wives, how you relate to your husbands. Husbands, how you relate to your wives. Now, notice what he says. Finally, all of you. No longer categories anymore, it's all of you. We're no longer talking about wives, husbands, employees, citizens of the government. The scope has been expanded to all of you, okay? So he's going to give two big categories. In verses 8 through 12, he's going to talk about how we relate to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's church, treat one another? And then he's going to talk about, okay, how do you relate to the outside world that persecute you okay so as a citizen of heaven living on earth and this is not our true home we've got to learn how to relate to each other as the church and we also have to learn how to relate to the world that hates us okay so first he's going to talk about church now it's very very interesting what peter has right here is a direct parallel to what paul has in romans chapter 12 so I'm going to try to do my best. We need to kind of keep your Bible flipping between both of these, okay? So keep your Bible open to 1 Peter, but then turn over to Romans chapter 12 because these are parallel passages of Scripture where Peter and Paul, not Mary, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Peter and Paul teach the same things. Okay, so remember what I just read in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 12. Now, listen to what I'm going to read in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18, and you will see almost the same exact list, okay? So let's let's read it. We're in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who, who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If as far as possible... So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, just kind of have that in your mind. Almost exact statements same some same Greek words there. Now, in Peter's epistle, he gives there in verse 8 five adjectives. <laughs> That are commands. I don't know why they're adjectives and commands, because that's just a weird construction in the, in the Greek language. But they're things we're supposed to do. So it goes like this. I've, I've taught you guys chiasms before, haven't I? A chiasm? You guys remember what a chiasm is? It's, this is a chiasm. It's sometimes used in Hebrew poetry in the Psalms. So you'll have A then you'll have B, then you'll have C, then you'll go back and have B, and then you'll have A. Okay, that's a chiasm. Well, it's kind of like what Peter's doing here, but A and B are similar, then you got C, and then D and E are similar. And what a chiasm does is whatever's in the middle. So think about a sandwich. Okay, you got bread on one side, bread on the other side. Now, okay, some of you like bread. In a sandwich, what's the most important thing in the sandwich? The bread on each side or what's in the middle? Okay, you got to what's in the middle makes it a sandwich, but if you don't have bread on both sides, you don't have a sandwich, do you? Unless you're gluten-free and you have to eat without bread. I love bread, so a sandwich is not a sandwich without bread. So, what Peter does is he's going to talk about two issues that relate to the mind, two issues that relate to the heart, and then in the middle, he's going to show us how all this comes together, okay? So let's look at the first, the first one. What does he say, first of all? Finally, all of you have unity of what? Mind really means the same mind to express the same way of thinking to live in harmony with the same purpose in other words we are to think alike as believers now this does not mean that we don't have our respective opinions or that we're clones of each other but it does mean that we're to be united in the way that we think romans 12:16 Paul also tells us to be of the same mind. Ultimately, we must have the mind of Christ. Do you think there's going to be more unity in the church if we're all thinking the same way? What are some wacky ways you can think? How should we be thinking? What does Romans 12 tell us? Romans 12, 1 and 2. by reading your Bible. So we're to be thinking biblically. We're to have a Christian worldview. We're to be... It doesn't mean we all have the same opinions per se, but it does mean that we're all... All of our thinking is being informed and transformed by the Bible. So in a church, if somebody comes up with something an opinion or a thought that's not biblical, does that cause disunity to the body? And what if they think they want to promote that or push that on other people? So what's our standard for how we think? Is it, oh, that's just my opinion. What's the worst thing you can do in a Bible study? If everybody's sitting in a circle, you're in a Bible study, and the leader goes around the circle, and what does he say? What does that mean to you? 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 What does this verse mean to you? What happens? You've got 20 different opinions about what that verse means. The person over here says, I think it means this. I think it means this. I think it means this. And everybody's fighting over what they think it means. And they could all be wrong because it's what they think it means versus what the Bible actually says. So we've got to be saturating our minds in the Bible, one of the things that Jesus prayed for, now think about this, Jesus prayed for before He went to the cross, was that we would be unified. So John 17, 20-23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You've sent Me, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. So we are to be unified. We are to be one. We're to be thinking the same way as Christians. Our mind is to be transformed by the Spirit, or by the Word of God. So we are to be thinking biblically, having a biblical worldview. Okay, that's the first thing Peter says we need to do. In verse 8. Secondly, Peter calls us to have sympathy. Interesting, the, the actual, you know where we get the word sympathy? The Greek word there is sympathes. You, you can hear it. Romans 12.15 tells us to have sympathy as well. 1 Corinthians 12.25-27 that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. So what is sympathy or empathy? There's a little bit different. It means that we genuinely care for one another It means that you're not insensitive, you're not callous, you're not putting others down. If somebody's genuinely hurting, you hurt with them. You come alongside them. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. We're we're supposed to be so intertwined in each other's lives that we have this mutual sympathy. Okay. So the first two talk about like how you your mind sympathy. And then you've got this whole idea of thinking. Now, third, right in the middle of the sandwich, what does he say? We are to go where Rocky Balboa lives. You're like, what? <laughs> Sorry. You are to have brotherly love. Do you guys know that's what Philadelphia is? Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. That's the word there, philadelphos. Philadelphos is the Greek word for brotherly love. Love. In Peter's construction, in the original language, what comes in the middle of the list is the most important. This is the one we're to focus on and all of the others hang off of it. Brotherly affection, brotherly love. You see that same parallel in Romans 12, 9 through 10. And Jesus tells us this in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as i've loved you you're also to love one another by this all people will know you're my disciples if you have love one for another okay brotherly affection sister, brother and sister affection okay all right fourth what does he tell us to have a tender heart a tender heart What's the opposite of a tender heart? Hard heart, cold heart. Okay, Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it's easy to get a hard heart towards people. Get a cold heart um, because you don't want to be bugged. (laughs) Okay, Just to be honest, you don't want to be bugged by other people. So it's easier to turn your heart off to them. But what type of compassion, what type of heart did Jesus have for people? Matthew nine thirty six. This is Jesus. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, tenderhearted does not mean that you never, ever address sin. Okay, sometimes there is a sentimentality in church life where we think compassion and tenderhearted and sympathy, all of these things mean that we never talk about sin. We never rebuke another Christian. We never confront. We never walk on or never address issues. We walk on eggshells and we've got this love thing going on, but we never actually speak the truth in love. Is that true compassion? What happens if somebody's blatantly wrong or sinful and you don't tell them? Are you showing compassion to them? We often think of compassion as only like helping people that are hurting or, 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 or you know, come alongside somebody that's brokenhearted, which is true, but also it could be that somebody is living in major sin and we address that. So compassion can say, I love you too much to let you stay where you are. Your sin is too difficult a burden for you to bear alone. I will come alongside you. I will address you. I will confront you. I will challenge you because I truly do love you. For example, people say, well, you shouldn't talk about hell. You shouldn't talk about repentance. You don't want to offend people. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about hell. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about judgment. Those things are going to turn people off. You need to be more loving. What's more loving, to withhold that information from them about the reality or to tell them about it? We sometimes get it backwards, don't we? Now, fifthly, Peter tells us to have a humble what? Mind. A humble mind. Don't be haughty. Don't be puffed up. Don't be conceited. Do we have a lot of people that are conceited? Puffed up? A haughty mind? You know, humility is hard to come by in our world today. There's not a lot of humble people. Everybody's always kind of trying to promote themselves. Now, let me show you the this, this structure again. I think I got the structure wrong when I wrote it down because I wasn't thinking right. I was right the first time, and then I kind of questioned myself, and then I realized that I was right. And then I... I was wrong, but so A, B, C, B slash, A slash. Okay, so what's the structure that he's given us here? Two descriptions deal with the affections of the heart. Oh, I'm, let me go back. Two descriptions refer to the mind. What's the first thing he says there? Have the same. Mind, right? How does he end the verse? Have a humble what? Mind, okay? Have the same mind, have a humble mind. What's the second thing he says? Have sympathy. What's the fourth thing he says? Be tender hearted. And what's the middle? Brotherly love. The same mind corresponds to humble mind, sympathy corresponds to tender hearted, and the middle of the sandwich is brotherly love that ties them all together. That's kind of the structure that he's showing there. Not that that's ultimately important, but that's just kind of a cool way that Peter puts it together. Okay, so as Christians, how are we to relate to one another? Love, affection, sympathy, unity. Encouragement, compassion. That's the way we're to treat each other. Now, he's going to shift gears and address how we relate to those that we face in a hostile world. Okay? Verse 9. Again, parallels Paul's instructions in Romans 12, 17. So, keep flipping back and forth between Romans and Peter. What's he say there? Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for this is what you recall, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, what does it mean to don't repay reviling for reviling? What does it mean to revile? Does anybody have a different translation besides reviling? What does it mean to revile? In verse 9, does anybody have a different translation besides reviling? It means to insult, to abuse, to curse. Have you ever been reviled? Has anybody ever cursed at you? Has anybody ever insulted you? Has anybody verbally abused you? Okay, okay. 1 Corinthians 4:12 Paul says, "When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure." So, this goes against human nature. If somebody slanders us, yells at us, verbally abuses us, insults us, what's our first gut level reaction that we want to do? We want to re- retaliate, don't we? we? Want to get right back in their face. We could like get back in their face if that's your personality or you could become passive aggressive if that's your personality. Either way, you want to get back at them, harbor bitterness. But Peter tells us to do something radical and this can only come from grace. He tells us to do what? Bless that person. Bless the person. Again, it comes from Romans 12, 14. Bless a person. If others hurt, offend, revile, or insult you, how will you respond? Will you love them? Will you show humility? Will you show patience and forgiveness? Let's say it's an unbeliever, like somebody you work with, and they're just heaping up reviling after reviling. <laughs> they're Maybe they... They're just really hard to get along with. How, how do you respond to that as a Christian? You bless them. Now, what's a practical way you can bless them? Well, if an unbeliever t- treats you this way, one of the practical ways you can bless them is by praying for their salvation. Now, I'm not excusing their behavior, but they're acting like a lost person. They're acting like the world, and they're doing what worldly people do. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but are you... Wanting to get even with them? Are you praying for their salvation? Are you showing them kindness? Jesus teaches this same principle in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 38-45. Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Easier said than done, right? Now, who got reviled, insulted, abused the most of any person that's ever lived? Jesus. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Roman soldiers heaped abuse upon Him. The two criminals heaped abuse upon Him. The Jewish leaders heaped abuse upon Him. And what does the Bible say? He did not retaliate. He did not open His mouth. But go back to chapter two, verse twenty-five. Well, twenty-three, actually. Go back to verse just just last chapter. Chapter two, verse twenty-two. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, there's that same word, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That's our model. To keep on entrusting ourselves to the Lord. In those times when you are being treated unfairly, when you're being maligned, when you're being abused, when you are being reviled, we keep on entrusting ourselves to our faithful God. That's easier said than done, but we've got to trust in the sovereignty of God. We have to trust in the goodness of God. We entrust ourselves to God's care to take care of us. Now, Peter there in verse 10, if you look, is yours bracketed? Not bracketed, but is yours, does yours look like a psalm? Okay, it is a psalm. It's a quote from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And so Peter's going to address some issues that are very, very practical in how we relate to when others, when others are coming at us, okay? When others are piling on, what's our temptation? To what? use our mouths for evil, right? (laughs) Okay, what does he say in verse 10? For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So verse 10 deals with our speech. James 3.6 The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Tell us what you really mean, James, about the tongue. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? So watch your tongue. In addition, he says, be truthful in your speech. Not just like watch how you retaliate with your mouth, but also make sure that you're putting away deception and lying, hypocrisy, that you're you're speaking honestly. One, one of the most convicting passages of Scripture is what Jesus says in Matthew 12 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, think about that for a moment. What's truly going on in your heart is going to come out in your mouth, it's going to reveal what's there. It may be to another person, it may be under your breath, it may be to God. It may come out as a cuss word. It may, I mean, what is going on in your heart is eventually going to come out in your mouth. And that's sometimes a scary thought. Okay? Verse 11, he's got these, these little quick commands there. Um, Turn from evil. Reject evil. And it's in the context of how we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ, back up there in verse 8. So sometimes we think of lack of compassion, lack of humility, lack of forgiveness. Like, these are character flaws, they're just bad habits. But actually, they're sins if you're not doing those things. They are evil. So turn from evil. Then he says, be eager to do good. Peter uses this word, do good, 11 times in this letter be those who as strangers in a strange land have been saved by grace who are living not of this world be those that do good then he says thirdly we're to seek and pursue peace literally hunt down peace seek peace be peacemakers Romans 12.18 is Paul's parallel statement to this passage and then Verse 12 is interesting because he's quoting the psalm, remember? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The ears are open to the prayers. So the Lord sees and hears His people. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When you think about the face of the Lord, we could do a whole study on the face of the Lord. Um, Do you remember the ironic blessing back in Numbers? You probably, sometimes I say it at the end of a worship service, the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and grant it. So for the Israelite to have the Lord's face shine upon them was the greatest of blessings. So when God's face shined upon you, when God's face was turned towards you, it was the Old Testament sign of receiving that blessing of God. I'm, I'm in God's presence. I have God's peace. His face is on me. To have God's face turn away from you was the exact opposite. It meant that you were cursed, you were abandoned, you were under God's judgment to have His face turn from you. So what does this say here? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, is that talking about believers or unbelievers? I think in the context, he's talking about unbelievers. Whose lifestyle is characterized by unrepentant sin. Okay? Any questions as we move forward? Husbands and wives, unity in the church, how we relate to those that may persecute us verbally and assault us. All right, let's keep on this theme, let's keep going. Let's read verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sakes, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Okay. We are to live honorable, godly lives before a watching world that's going to come at us with slander. They're going to come at us with misunderstandings. All types of things are going to come at us. And what should we be known for as Christians? If we're going to suffer... All right, so let me, let me say it this way. If you're a Christian, should you suffer for doing good and godly things or should you suffer for being a jerk and doing things that are stupid? Okay? There's a different... You can suffer... Like, if you're a Christian and you suffer because you did something stupid, that's not the kind of suffering Peter's talking about here. Okay, there, there's some dumb things you can do and deal with the consequences of that, and that's just doing dumb stuff, and you're dealing with the consequences. But if you're actually doing godly things, you're doing good, you're zealous for good, you're suffering for righteousness' sake, you're standing up for Jesus, you're proclaiming the gospel... That is God's will for you to suffer in that way. So Peter says there in verse 13, there's who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. You will be blessed if you suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, what does it mean to suffer for righteousness' sake? What does that mean? You're suffering for living for the truth of Christ. You will be blessed. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? I'm sorry, I haven't, I haven't, um, I haven't gone through my slides here to catch up to where I'm talking about. That's what happens when you talk and don't pay attention to what you're doing. Matthew five, eleven through twelve. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, this is one of the Beatitudes. It doesn't make sense. Blessed are you, you're blessed. When others revile you, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Okay, that doesn't make any sense. What's our first gut-level response when we're reviled, when we're persecuted, when we're maligned? What do we want to do? There's a couple of ways you can respond, depending on your personality. Fight or flight, okay? Some people have a fighting personality where if that's going to happen, what are they going to do? Well, I'm going to fight fire with fire, and I'm going to retaliate back, and I'm I'm going to prove my rights, and I'm going to show them what's up, and I'm going to get back at them. Others... I don't like conflict. I'm just going to fight. I'm going to flight. And I'm going to try to avoid it. I'm going to be afraid. I'm not going to even deal with it. I want to just get away. Neither one of those responses are godly. So what Peter tells us here is in light of the hostility that comes, the embarrassment, persecution, intimidation, Peter commands us to do some very specific things. Okay? What's the first thing he tells us to do there? Look, look at verse... Fourteen. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear men, but fear God. Isaiah eight twelve through thirteen is kind of an allusion to this passage, Old Testament allusion. Isaiah eight twelve through thirteen. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Now, fear of man. What is fear of man? Or fear of other people? It comes in a lot of different ways, guys and gals. It comes in peer pressure. I fear what they're going to think of me, so I'm going to give in. It comes in not being bold because you're afraid of the consequences. It is a legitimate thing to fear what others think of you. But Peter says, don't fear. Now, why? Romans 8:31 What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us Who can bring any charge against God's elect It's God who justifies Fear of man is a very real thing You've experienced it before peer pressure I'm afraid of losing your reputation afraid to speak up because you're not sure how it's going to go. And in those moments, who are you really fearing? The opinions of others, what other people can do to you, how other people think of you, the consequences, and who's the last person you're thinking about? The Lord. And how the Lord is the one that protects you and vindicates you and, and who you're accountable to. Okay? Now, Here's where we get into this whole issue of evangelism and sharing the faith and defending the faith. So first thing Peter says is don't be afraid of them. It's a negative command. Don't be afraid. Secondly, a positive command. And the way the ESV says it in verse 15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally in the Greek text, sanctify or set apart holy Christ as Lord in your hearts. Okay, so let me ask you guys a question. You've heard me say this over and over again. Do you, you've heard people say, just make Jesus the Lord of your life. Just make him the Lord of your life. Do you make Jesus the Lord of your life? If you make Jesus Lord of your life, who's in charge there? You're you're making him something. Okay, do you make Jesus Lord? Or is he already Lord, regardless of what you do with him, but you submit to him? He's already Lord. He's absolutely Lord. He's already sovereign. He's already King of kings and Lord of lords. What this passage of Scripture is saying is, okay, because he is Lord, we are in our hearts to acknowledge him as Lord, set him apart as Lord, treasure him as Lord, give healthy fear to him as our Lord and our King. The Lordship of Christ. Submit to His Lordship. Okay, so that's the main command there. Set Christ apart in your hearts as Lord. He already is Lord. We just joyfully submit to Him. Now, hanging off this primary command, that's the primary command. He gives us like three ways. Again, I keep I keep getting by. Three specific ways we do this. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So
1: would that be something that a person, and uh, maybe you already said, that
0: they mm-hmm. aren't setting apart Christ then? In the in sense, is that a command? To yeah, it is. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically saying, yeah, He's already Lord. Right. And as believers, you've already submitted Him to Lord. But in those moments of fear, you have to consciously, you have to consciously acknowledge the Lordship of Christ instead of fearing men. You've got to say, you know what? I'm not going to fear men. I'm going to treasure Jesus so much as my Lord. I'm going to set him apart in my heart. He's going to be the chief of my desires. My heart's going to be drawn to him. I'm going to give all my attention, all my focus, all my desire to him. I'm going to treasure Jesus as my ultimate. Oh, yeah. A lot easier said than done. Yeah, especially when you're in the thick of the battle or when you're in those moments of peer pressure in those moments where you need to open your mouth. That's where, you, that's where the, the rubber meets the road. So how do you do that? Well, he gives three ways. Here's the first. Always be prepared to defend the truth of the gospel. Look there at the, the second half of verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense Make a defense. Always being prepared. Now, interestingly, that word always being prepared, it literally means to be established. Here's what it means. It means that you are so prepared to share the gospel because you are so much in the gospel. In other words, you can't share what you don't know. Most of you in this room know more than you think you know. You know the gospel. Okay, but if you're not in the gospel, preaching the gospel to yourself, sitting under preaching, saturating yourself with the Word of God, thinking about what Christ has done, focusing on the cross, then are you going to be ready? The more you focus on Jesus, the more you'll be ready to share Jesus when that time comes up. You'll be ready to make a defense, an apologia. That's what the word there, apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics, to make an apologetic. Now, when I was a kid growing up and they, when I was in church, they talked, like, we're going to study apologetics. I always thought Well that's weird. Are we gonna like apologize for believing in Jesus? You know, it's like what's apologetics? Apologetics doesn't mean that we apologize for being a Christian. Apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to make a clear and concise defense of the gospel. Those are two two key words there. Clear and concise defense. We must be clear on the gospel. We can't be fuzzy. We can't water it down. We can't mince our words. We've got to be very clear in what we are sharing. So let me ask you a very simple question. What is the gospel? What is it? In one sentence, what is the gospel? More specifically, that's the Bible, not the gospel. Okay. Oh, that's that's pretty much that. What'd you say? Say it again. Jesus on the cross for our sins and Okay. Yes, but there's a little bit like so. Here's how I would say the gospel is. You don't have to. You don't have to mimic me on this, but here's here's what I would say the gospel is. The gospel is the historical reality of the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the command for all people everywhere to repent and believe in Him. Okay? So it's a historical reality. It happened. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're not talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're not talking about the gospel. If you're not talking about sin, forgiveness, if you're not talking about repentance and faith and lordship, you're not talking about the gospel. Okay? So, it involves the gospel sadly though sometimes when people share their faith and I'm going to talk about this Sunday morning a little bit some people when they share their testimonies they never get around to the gospel has anybody ever shared the testimony the testimony never got around the gospel I was this bad person and I did this and, the, and, and and this is what happened to me and I went through this real hard time and this is what happened and, and it's all about these things that happened to me and I did this and they talk about this and I and, and I had to change life and okay you had to change life these things happened to you a buddhist comes up after you and talks about how these things happened to them and they had to change life a hindu comes up and talks about how these things happened to them they had to change life everybody lines up and talks about how they had to change life and and what the one thing that the christian never said is oh by the way I didn't even tell you the gospel. I told you my life, but the gospel is not my life. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're not talking about Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection, you're not talking about the gospel. So we're, we need to be ready to make a defense. The more we're in the word, we're more than in the gospel, the more we're thinking about the gospel, the more we're going to be ready to make a defense, a clear, concise Apologia, defense of the gospel, not some warm, fuzzy, like not clear, not concise, not bold testimony. Now, can you share the gospel and be a jerk about it? Can you be clear and concise and be a jerk? I can stand up here and tell you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I can do it in a really jerky way. Okay? Second thing, what does Peter tell us there? But, what does he say? Yet, at the end of verse 15, yet do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Have you ever yelled yelled a non-believer into the kingdom of God by being obnoxious? Now, here's where it gets really tricky. Can you talk about the deep issues of hell And sin and repentance and the law of God and the need for Jesus in a way that's firm and clear and bold and yet at the same time with gentleness and respect yes I've had some very powerful conversations with people about the gospel where it was more of a conversation than me yelling a lot of times it was me asking them questions and them answering those questions and me answering questions back. Now, notice that word respect. Gentleness and respect. That word respect is a very interesting word in the Greek language. It carries two meanings. It's got a double meaning. First meaning is we're to respect the person to whom we're sharing the gospel. So the person you're sharing the gospel with, they're made in the image of God, you're to respect them, They may never come to faith. They may totally disagree with you, but that is no excuse to disrespect them as a person. So it means to show them respect. But at the same time, that Greek word also means we're to fear God and not man and be bold in our witness. We share the gospel with fear. We respect the person. We fear God. Okay. So, let's let's follow Peter's flow of thought here. Jesus has to be central in your heart as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He's the desire of your life. Okay. How does that work itself out when you're sharing the gospel number 1? Always be ready to give a defense. So, always be ready, be clear, concise, bold in your gospel proclamation, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, so let me ask you a third question. Can you be clear in your gospel witness? Can you do it with gentleness and respect, but you have have a lifestyle that doesn't back up your message? Okay, so that's the third thing that Peter says here. Thirdly, we are to have a godly lifestyle that backs up our verbal witness. Notice what he says there. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be foot put to shame. Having a good conscience. What does that mean, having a good conscience or a clear conscience? It means this. Our conscience must be clear. It means that we are not defending the gospel with our persuasive words while our lifestyle or our behavior contradicts everything we're saying. I'm telling you about Jesus, I'm talking about how He can change your life, I'm talking about all these things related to the gospel, but yet my lifestyle doesn't back it up one bit. Do you have a clear conscience in your verbal witness? Paul said in Acts 24, 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So they may revile you, But when they see your good conduct, when they see your good behavior, they're really not going to have a charge. They may make up charges. They may try to get you on a sticking point. But if you're living for Christ and you have a clear conscience and not saying you're perfect and that you never sin, but the totality of your life is one of repentance and faith towards Christ, and they make these things up about you, You can go to bed at night with your head on your pillow knowing that they may say whatever they say about me. I know I have a clear conscience before God. I haven't done anything wrong. Okay? And Peter says that they're going to be put to open shame. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what's the end result of... These mockers and scoffers that insult us, they'll be put to shame. Okay, Now what does that mean, they'll be put to shame? On that day of judgment, these revilers who only see Christians as narrow-minded, oppressive, outdated, or even idiotic will face the ultimate shame. They shamed you, they will experience the ultimate shame on that final day. They will be humiliated by God on the day of judgment and we will be vindicated on the last day of judgment peter tells us clearly in verse 17 it is better to suffer for doing good if it be god's will than for doing evil again don't be stupid so let me tell you guys a story it was 155 a.d and the roman empire was persecuting christians and they would round up christians They would bring him before the authorities. They would have to pledge their allegiance to Caesar as Lord and God. They would take that pinch of incense like I've talked about before on the altar of Zeus and they'd throw it in there and they'd have to confess their faith to Caesar as Lord and God. And there was an old pastor who was actually mentored by the Apostle John. The Apostle John mentored this man when he was a young man. And he knew that it was God's will for him to be arrested because he's like, I am not going to stand up and pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord and God. So he goes into a barn and he doesn't go into hiding and the Roman soldiers come in to arrest him. He doesn't fight them, but he invites them to dinner and says, sit down and have a meal with me before you arrest me. (laughs) Okay, if you're going to arrest me, let's just eat with me. So they eat with him. They arrest him. And they actually bring him back before the tribunal. And they want him as an 86-year-old man to renounce Christ and swear allegiance to the emperor. Okay? So this is an 86-year-old man. They said, okay, we won't burn you to the stake. We won't kill you if you just renounce Jesus. Just pinch the incense. Just renounce Jesus. It's not going to be that big of a deal. Just do it. Nobody's going to care. We know that you believe in Jesus, but just do it for our sake. Okay, this is his famous quote. He said, quote, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who has saved me? And then they kept pressuring him to give in, to give in. And here's where his dying words that are recorded. He said, He said, Lord, Sovereign God, I thank you that you've deemed me worthy of this moment so that with your martyrs I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And he was burned to the stake. I don't know if you know the guy's name. His name's Polycarp. He was one of the early church fathers, the early martyr of the church. So as an 86-year-old man, it would have been very easy for him to do what? hey, man, I've lived my whole life for Jesus. No big deal. Just pinch incense. I really don't want to face those flames. It'd be a whole lot easier just to kind of denounce Christ publicly. And I know in my heart I don't mean it, but publicly I'll I'll just do this thing. Well, obviously we don't face this type of stuff in America, do we? We're not required to go pinch incense and get burned at the stake. But are we tempted to fear men? Are we tempted to not share the gospel? Are we tempted to give in to peer pressure? Are we tempted to not give a defense when somebody asks us for the hope that's in us? We're we're under all these temptations. And so what's the the answer to all that? In your heart set apart Christ the Lord as holy. Find your ultimate joy and satisfaction in Jesus as your treasure. So here's my prayer, is that God, may God, by His grace, raise up a generation of Christ-saturated, gospel-loving people who will be willing to suffer for His sake and will not fear man, but will fear God. We need a generation of people that will do that. And I don't mean just young people, but I mean all people. Because we're moving into a day and age in our culture where we're going to need people to be able to stand up for truth and not be afraid. Come hell or high water, or whatever may come, will we give a defense for the faith? Clearly, compellingly, boldly, yet do it with gentleness and respect, have a clear conscience, and Christ be our all in all. We desperately, we desperately need that. All right, any questions, comments, snide remarks? All right, you guys ready to go charge the gates of hell? <laughs> All right, I, I owe you guys 15 minutes, so we're done early. So next week... no. I think we only have three more weeks until we take a break for summer, so I'm going to have to jet through 1 Peter so we can finish this thing. So we'll figure out what we're going to do. I may have to do some turbo teaching. So, All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, we've looked at a lot of practical issues tonight about husbands and wives. Lord, I pray for the wives in this room, that you would give them the grace to be able to voluntarily submit to their husbands and Lord, as husbands, I pray that you give us grace to love and cherish and protect and serve our wives. Lord, we've looked at unity in the church and how we to love and encourage and, and have the same mind and sympathy for one another. Lord, help us to to just relate to one another as in the body of Christ with unity. Lord, we've looked at tonight of giving a defense, being bold in our witness, not fearing men. So I pray for boldness this week, that we'd be able to be ready to give a defense. We do it with gentleness and respect, and we would... Um, know that that those persecutions are going to come, and, and we just need to be bold. And so in all things, Jesus, we treasure You, we love You, we submit to You as our ultimate Lord. It's in Your name that we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.